In case you hadn't noticed, there's a battle going on for the hearts and souls of our nation. And as Christ followers, we don't have an option not to get involved in the battle. We are called to this higher calling. Jesus, when he was about to send his disciples out, he was talking to them. He was explaining what was going to happen. He says this in Matthew 10, 16. He says, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be shrewd as serpents and innocent as doves. So he's telling his followers 2,000 years ago, but these words also apply to us. He wants us to be smart. Shrewd means to be cunning, not in a deceitful way, but he wants us to be smart as our enemy because our enemy is attacking us. So make no mistake, there is a battle. There's a war going on. And if you don't believe it, then, then you don't have to look any further than to our Pledge of Allegiance and think about these words. One nation under whom? Under God. Not above God. Not equal with God. Not without God. It says one nation under God. But as you look around, is that what you see? Do you see a nation submitted to God the Father? No, we don't see that. So as a Christ follower, we ought to get angry with some of the stuff that's going on in our nation, in our world. So today, as I kick off this series called Politic, I want to do a quick overview of some of the battles that we are facing and hopefully wake us up because it is a fierce battle that's going on. According to Scripture, it's not just a battle between human beings. It's much, much bigger than that. Ephesians chapter 6. I'm actually going to... I've only got verse 12 on there, but I'm going to read. I'm going to start in verse 10. A final word. Be strong with the Lord's mighty power. Put on God's armor so that you will be able to stand firm against all the strategies, all the schemes of the devil, the tricks of the devil. Now, the schemes, um, this, this implies one who is a deceiver. And in fact, Satan means accuser, one who deceives, accuses. He says, so that we can uh, stand firm against all the strategies and tricks of the devil. For we are not fighting against people made of flesh and blood, not just fighting against people made of flesh and blood, but against the evil rulers and authorities of the unseen world. Um, against the... Uh, I'm going to go here against the rulers of darkness and powers in the spiritual world. Um, Paul is saying that that we have this battle against forces that we don't even recognize. And part of the problem is these forces have been uh, arrayed against us since before humans were on the planet. The strategies and the schemes of the accuser have been effective for thousands of years. We're only here maybe a hundred years if we're lucky. He's been beating back people who follow God for thousands of years. And so Paul goes on to say, if you don't put on the full armor of God for this battle, and he talks about the helmet of salvation and the breastplate of righteousness and the belt of truth, and he talks about the the sandals, uh, girding your feet with the the sandals of peace, and he talks about the the sword of the spirit and and the, the shield of faith. He says, if you don't use these things, you will be defeated by an enemy who is smarter than you. Now, let me just say this. The devil is not all knowing. He's not all powerful. He is a created being, which means his time is finite. But he is smarter than you and I are. And he's been practicing on humans for thousands of years. And we get caught up in these battles. We don't even realize the battle is going on. We get defeated by an enemy who has been practicing and wants to tear down anything that is of God. So we're going to look at some of these battles. And we're going to talk about them for just a few minutes. First battle is truth versus relativism. Truth versus relativism. That's a big word. I remember hearing that in college, relativism. Didn't know what it was coming from a small town about the size of of Palestine and went to Baylor University and heard about this. 
Well, I want you to see something. In John 8, 32, again, Jesus is speaking. And Jesus is saying, when you know him and you follow him, he says this, then you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. You see, a lot of people are relativists today. Relativism sounds cool and it sounds hip. And lots of celebrities and a lot of these political pundits, they are relatives, relativists. So let's see, what does that mean to be a relativist? According to Webster's Dictionary, it's a view that ethical truths depend on individuals and groups holding them. Think about that. Ethical truth, according to the dictionary, ethical relativism... Depends on an individual, depends on you and me, depends on the groups that we're a part of. That's what relativism says. Every, all the standards are simply true for a situation. So a relativist would say, well, you may, that may be true for you, but what's true for you may not be true for me. Do you see how stupid this is? Okay, let's say we have a university of relativism. And, and you go and you attend there. And Professor Relativism stands up in front of the class and he says, I'm going to give you a multiple choice test. On this test, every answer has four options. A, B, C, or D. But you get to choose which answer is right for you. Doesn't matter how many questions there are. Whatever answer you choose is right for you. And you will get 100 on the test. Now, some of you who are sitting here are going, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. That's a standardless test. And you would be right. And relativism flies in the face of Christianity. Because there is a standard and his name is Jesus Christ. According to Jesus. In John 14, 6, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So he says, not only is truth a concept, but he says, I am truth personified. If you want to know truth, Jesus is saying, then you got to get to know him. Then when Jesus prays in John chapter 17, this is actually what's... Really, the Lord's Prayer, what we call the Lord's Prayer in Matthew uh, chapter 6, that's just a model prayer. His disciples said, teach us to pray. He said, pray like this. This isn't the Lord's Prayer. In John 17, you actually hear Jesus praying, so it's more aptly described as the Lord's Prayer. Here's what he says in verse 17 of chapter 17. Sanctify them by your truth. Sanctify means to make holy. So Jesus is saying, he's praying about us, he's praying about his followers at the time, but he's also praying about any follower who's going to be in the future. He says, sanctify them by truth. Make them holy. Set them apart to be used by you, Lord God, by your truth. And then, so that there's no uh, discrepancy, he says, your word is truth. Jesus elevates this to truth. Not some arbitrary concept, not something that you discover on on the inside of you. He he describes this as absolute truth. And so if you have if you have something that's absolute truth, it's true for all people in all situations. Jesus claims to be truth. He claims that the Bible is God's truth. So it has to be absolute truth for everybody. But let's suppose that you decide there is a truth out there and there's a physical truth. Let's say a physical truth called gravity. You wake up one day and you say, I don't think I agree with the law of gravity today. Gravity may be true for you, but gravity's not true for me. Now, if I'm in a good mood, then I may say, well, let's go to a cliff somewhere and let's find out which of us is true. Because you're saying it's true for me, but not true for you. And we get up there and I'd say, okay, here's the deal. You jump. If you float, then I'll believe you. If you splat then you'll just prove that there's a truth and I'm smarter than you. If I'm in a bad mood, I might push you just to make the point. Right? Because that's just stupid. There are physical laws. Whether you agree with the physical law or not, it applies to you. Well, if Jesus is right, there are also spiritual laws that apply to all of us. For example, at the beginning of time, before there were humans, 
God created one human. What was his name? Adam. And God went through this elaborate process where he brought all the animals that were already created. And all of the animals had male and female. I think God was making a very specific point here. Adam gets to name all the animals, which is pretty cool. That would be fun. Just, you know, thinking up a name. I don't know how you'd come up with zebra. I don't know. What just popped into his head. But there's a male and female. And then it says at the end, but Adam found that there was no helper, no companion suitable for him. So what does God do? God causes him to fall asleep. He takes a rib out and he creates Eve, not Steve. All right. And, and this is very clear throughout the scripture. Marriage is intended for one man, one woman for a lifetime. Now, let me just say this. New Life Community Church loves and accepts homosexuals. I'll go to lunch with anybody who's a homosexual. I'll invite them to our church. We've had them in our church before. And we've loved them. And we've told them the truth. But we will not approve of that behavior. Because God gets to make up the rules. And God is truth and His rules. From cover to cover, it says that homosexuality is unnatural. Whenever you have a a discrepancy, go back to the beginning. In the beginning, man, woman, Adam and Eve. There was no suitable helper found for Adam amongst all the animals. And so God created a woman. And God is the one who made up marriage in the beginning. If you take absolute truth and you remove it from society, you get chaos. And see, our government, I'm just going to tell you this, our government does not have the authority to, dec- to claim that marriage is anything other than one man or one woman because God, the ultimate authority, has said it. And if our government decides to contradict with God, who do we have to follow? God, every time. Just look into Daniel. Read, read the book of Daniel. He got in a lot of trouble, and he's famous because he stood up to the government when they opposed God's laws. Now... Relativism always leads to chaos. You take away absolute truth and a society will become chaotic. I want you to think about who has become the preachers and the prophets and the teachers of our generation. Politicians and Hollywood stars. Now, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Just for fun sometimes, read up on the educational background of some of the Hollywood stars. Many of them never got out of high school. The vast majority of them never went to college. Who are they to tell me what I'm supposed to believe, especially when their standards contradict with God's standards higher? They may be sincere, but they're sincerely wrong. (laughs) In the Old Testament, there was a passage of Scripture in the book of Judges that sounds eerily similar to what we're going through in our country today. It's in Judges 21-25, and it says this, In those days Israel had no king... And all the people did whatever seemed right in their own eyes. You see, whenever we have no standards, it scatters people. And you do whatever you want to. Whenever you have an absolute truth, it gathers people together. I think you could legitimately ask, where is God in the United States? Now, God has not left us. We have left him. And he's waiting on somebody to stand up. He's waiting on you to to bow before him and he will rush in to help you. But when there is no king, no ultimate authority... God the Father, the King of kings, the Lord of lords. When you do not submit to Him, it leads to chaos. And relativism will scatter the people. Let me give you a very uh, practical example of this. I read just this week, and I'd, I'd known this, but I was doing a little bit of reading on the internet. And I found out that if you kill a sea turtle, 
I think every, every species, there's like seven or eight different ones, and they named all of them. If you kill a sea turtle, you can face massive jail time and unbelievable fines, like $250,000 on up for killing a sea turtle. You can go to jail for a minimum of a year and this massive fine if you even disturb the sand, the nesting ground where the uh, sea turtles, because the sea turtles have to come up on the sand and they have to bury their eggs. If you disturb the egg... You can go to jail and pay up to $10,000 for each offense. So let me get this straight. It is illegal to harm an unborn sea turtle, but it's perfectly legal to destroy an unborn child. Tell me if that's not relativism in action. I'll get fired up on that. Truth is not something you get to make up or discover inside of you because your truth and my truth are going to be very different if we are just looking inside of ourselves. Truth is outside. His name is Jesus Christ. When you accept him and he comes into your life, then the Holy Spirit, God's truth, begins to live in you and gives you a mind and an understanding that you did not have. And in fact, the Bible says that if you don't know Christ, then the things of Christ are foolishness to you. But as soon as you accept Christ and truth begins to live in you, it rocks your world. I've never been the same since God came into my life and changed me. So battle number one, truth versus relativism. Second battle, effectiveness versus bureaucracy. I was reading uh, this week and a Texas pastor said that he had a U.S. congressman tell him, this was just a few years ago, told him that there are more employees at the U.S. Department of Agriculture than there are actual farmers in the United States. Does that make sense? Now, we have about 200 people here on average on a Sunday. If we ran our church the way... And we have three staff members. Two full-time, one part-time staff member. If we ran our church the way the government runs things, we would have 200 staff members for three people sitting in the pews. We don't have pews in the seats. That makes a lot of sense, doesn't it? I want you to name one thing that the government does well. Well, there you go. One, one, one entity that they run that they run well. The post office? What's, what's the problem with the post office right now? And we have postal employees. I'm grateful for Lewis. Um, I'm grateful. Uh, we've got another one there. I'm grateful that, that you guys have jobs with the post office. I'm not at all talking about the employees. I'm talking about the people who run the post office that are running it in the ground. It's almost bankrupt. Social Security? Almost bankrupt. Medicare? Almost bankrupt. I read that Medicare, there's at least 31% fraud. I bet it's higher than that in Medicare. Now, what if, what if you ran your business or if I ran my business with one third of it fraud? Bad boys, bad boys. What you gonna do when they come for you? Some of you don't even know that. So far. I'm almost 50 and it shows. So there seems like a theme here. Here's an interesting fact. The Bible contains a little over 774,000 words. Just for a little bit of comparison, how bureaucracy works. Our tax code, now this comes from, not, from 2005, and I'm sure it's more now, but the Nonpartisan Tax Foundation says the entire tax code with all the regulations is over 9 million words. If you follow just the instructions for your regular 1040 form, it's 161 pages. If you do the EZ with the big E and the Z, it's 41 pages. Give me a massive break. Bureaucracy in action. The government's job is to protect, not to run businesses. But, the, but our government has become a permissive parent. You know what a permissive parent does? 
never holds a child accountable for anything and never wants a child to fail because that might, that might stunt their growth. I've grown most through failure. I've learned more. Now, I don't want to do it again, but I'm grateful that my parents didn't shield me from my failures. When I messed up, my parents said, you, you blew it, dude. And I'm grateful for that because it, it helped me take responsibility for my life and not begin blaming other people. The government is supposed to protect. Let me just ask you this, the economy. Don't even get me started. But, but how many bailouts did we hand out to different failing industries? I don't know. You don't know either. Isn't bailing out a failing industry kind of like giving booze to a recovering alcoholic? I mean, does that not make sense? The government's not supposed to be in that. Here's what the government is supposed to do as defined by the founders of our country. They're supposed to protect us and allow us the opportunity for life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. The government, government is not the source of my life. The government is not the source of my liberty. And it certainly isn't the source of my happiness. Permissive parents will we'll give, we'll give someone a, a cell phone and a job when they graduate from high school. Actually, we won't even make them graduate from high school. And we will not hold them accountable for anything. The Bible says if you... The Bible says able-bodied people are supposed to work. It even says if able-bodied people do not work, we're not even supposed to feed them. How's that for some tough love? Now, the Bible also says we're supposed to take care of those who cannot take care of themselves. You know whose job it is in our country to take care of the poor and the, and the unfortunate? The church. The church is failing. The government's failing. But it's not even the government's job to do that. We should be taking the lead in, in caring for those type of people. We can't enable able-bodied people not to work. That doesn't make sense. That's bureaucracy. Battle number three. Responsibility, responsibility versus victimization. We so want it to be someone else's fault, don't we? We're a nation of whiners and accusers. It can't be my fault. Someone has to be, has to be blamed for this mess, but it can't possibly be me. Did you know that blaming others is directly in violation of Christian principles? Because when I come to Christ, I have to own up to I'm a sinner. I can't blame my parents. I can't blame anybody else. I have to stand up and say, I am a sinner. And I have to bow down to God and say, there's no way I can get to heaven. I'm going to give you my sin because you've paid the price for my sin. And I'm totally going to get into heaven based on your merits, not on my own. It is taking responsibility for my actions. And so I, I admit the fact that I've, I've turned from God, that I've sinned, and I, I give my sins to Him at the cross, and I give up my rights to determine my own course of action. I give up my rights, and I have to turn to Jesus Christ instead. I don't get to call the shots anymore. I exchange that right at the cross. Then I follow God. Well, how do you know what God wants? Well, the Bible's very clear on this. Half-brother of Jesus in James chapter 1 says this. If any of you needs wisdom to know what you should do, you should ask God and he will give it to you. God is generous to everyone and doesn't find fault with them. Ask God for advice. Ask God for common sense. Really, we shouldn't even call it common sense because common sense is uncommon. We ought to call it uncommon sense because common sense is uncommon. Right? It's a stupid idea to say that people have common sense because very few people have it. It's not common. (laughs) Do you realize how we get common sense? You ask God. And God will give it to you. But our nation isn't really submitting to God. Battle number four. Wisdom versus intelligence. There is a massive shortage of wise people in our country today. 
I didn't say educated because there's more educated idiots in our country than you can shake a stick at. When I say intelligence or, or IQ, please understand that it does not equal wisdom. According to James that we just read, James 1, 5, wisdom begins with God. If you lack it, you ask God. Do you want to be wise? I didn't say intelligent. Do you want to be wise? Then you ask God and God says he will give you wisdom. If you need wisdom in marriage, you bow the knee to God. And you say, God, I do not know how to be married. And if your spouse is bowing the knee to God and you are bowing the knee to God, there is nothing that you cannot face. The problem is that I try to do things in my power. And if Janie tries to do things in her power, we are going to have massive conflict because it's my ego versus her ego. It's my territory versus her territory. But when we get on our knees before God, this amazing thing happens. I begin to see her as God sees her, as this beautiful creation. She begins to see this as a beautiful creation. And I praise God for that. Does this not make sense? If you need wisdom in your business, you bow the knee to God. This is what scripture says. The source of truth says, bow your knee to God and he will show you. If you need wisdom in your finances, you bow the knee to God. And you say, God, how do I do my finances? You need wisdom in parenting. You bow the knee to God. And God says, I will give you wisdom. But he doesn't just throw it out there for anybody. It's the people who bow their knee. I want you to look at Proverbs 1.7. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and discipline. Anytime I I refuse to bow my knee to God, according to Scripture, I'm a fool because I'm despising wisdom. I'm despising knowledge and discipline. What does it mean to be wise? It's real simple. Wisdom means to see life from God's perspective. Wisdom means I see my marriage from God's perspective. I see parenting. I see this job as, as, as a pastor. You see your business from God's perspective, and that's wisdom. Then we can make right choices in life. That's why we need to elect people who have wisdom. It means you need to pray. You need to get involved in the political process because there is a battle raging in our country for the hearts and souls of the people. Now, next week, I'm going to tell you who to vote for. I'm going to give you five questions that when you ask these questions and you answer them, it'll be very clear. And I don't care which race you're talking about. It'll be very clear who you're supposed to vote for. When you ask these questions, you'll know. Now, I wanted to read this verse and, and then we're going to pray. Um, because this, this kind of... I, I talked to the men's group about this this morning. Second Chronicles 7.14 says this. Because see, what's going on is, is the nation... In, in Chronicles, the nation was in trouble. And God was saying, here's what's going to happen. All this bad stuff's going to happen because you've made choices. You've done what's right in your own eyes. And he says, but then if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sins and restore their land. The whole reason that we're going to open up the church on, on uh, Tuesday nights is because we've got to be a people of prayer. And if there's one weakness that, that I see at New Life, it's that we don't pray enough together. I pray at home. Janie and I pray together. But we need to have a consolidated effort to pray for guidance for our country, guidance for our church, healing of broken marriages, that stuff we can't handle on our own. And we need to be coming up here on a regular basis. So 
We're just going to open it up Tuesday. We'll have a, have a little guide that you can come in. And, and it's, it's just a powerful time to set aside that time and come to pray. And, and so I don't want you to feel guilty if you can't come. Take the prayer guides. We'll make those available each week uh, on Sundays. You can take those. You can pray anytime. But something about praying in God's, in the place where we gather to worship corporately gives us power. Uh, so when we finish, we've still got a few minutes. But when we finish today, we've got three baskets in the back. We've got our joy basket. That's where we take up our offerings. We've got our registration card basket. Want you to write your name, fill out your name and all that stuff on there. If you have prayer concerns, write that on the back. And then uh, we have a bagel basket. And that's where, that's where we put everything in there. Goes to uh, pay off our debts. Um, I've got to do something that's very difficult today. Uh, we, uh, we at our church have, have always believed that, that truth is, is the best policy. Um, and we've always held our, our folks in leadership, teaching, band, stuff like that, to a very high um, accountability. And the Bible says that, um, that you're supposed to confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you can be healed. Uh, Caleb, come on up here, buddy. This is, this is very personal to me, and, and you're going to understand if I struggle. Um, this is my son, and, and I love him, and I'm proud of him. And, and my son can't do anything that will shame me, because I love him. And, and I, uh, I want the best for his future. And some of you have probably realized that he hadn't been playing on stage. Uh, we found out that there was some sexual sin in Caleb's life. And, and had, had this been a private matter, we deal with things. And some of you are going, oh, dear God, I'm never coming back to this church because they're going to make me stand up. No, no, that's not the principle. The principle is if something is private, you deal with it in private. But when it becomes public, you have to deal with it in public. And so um, we, have, we have dealt with Caleb. There's discipline. There's a difference in discipline and punishment. Punishment is I want to hurt you for what you did to me. We don't, we don't believe in that. In my family, we believe in discipline, which tries to help you be a better person in the future. He, he's heard this all his life as, as he's gotten swats and groundings and stuff. I want you to make a better choice next time. The only reason I'm doing this is because I want you to be a man who seeks after God. And I want you to make a better choice. So we've done some discipline and we've cried and, and we've, we've had uh, some very difficult times through this whole thing. And he's really struggled because he's a good guy. I really believe he's got a heart for God. And I believe that Satan wants to take him down the wrong path to keep him from serving the kingdom. But we said because of the severity of this and because some people, some teenagers had found out about this and and we wanted to get rid of gossip. Bible says that as long as something is in the dark, Satan has power. But when you bring it into the light, he loses power. So Caleb, of his... This is your own choice, right? We didn't force you to come up here, right? We, we wanted his heart to be right. And, and we said that he could not serve. He couldn't serve in the band. He couldn't serve anywhere because there was sexual sin in his life. And, and I said, when you get ready to stand up in front of the church and confess your sin and ask the church to forgive you, then we'll talk about restoring you. But it's got to be a church-wide thing because, because our actions bring consequences on the church. Some of the most severe things in Scripture happened when someone defamed the name of God. Now, that wasn't running through his mind. He wasn't thinking he was defaming God or me or the church. But that's what happened. Satan says, you can do something and you can get away with it. That's the lie. The very first lie told Adam and Eve in the garden. You can taste this fruit and no one will ever know. 
That's a lie from hell. So Caleb has confessed your sins. You confessed your sins to God. You've asked God to forgive you. You've confessed your sins to me and mom. And you've asked us to forgive you. So now, in obedience to God, you're asking the church. You're confessing and asking them to forgive you of your sin. Okay. Go sit down. Now, here's the deal. Would you turn up all the lights back there? I can't stay in one place. Um, Scripture is very clear that when someone confesses their sin, we don't have any option but to forgive them. Trust is another thing, and we're working on trust. And, and I'm telling you, he, he's, been a, he's, he's been working on rebuilding his trust with his, with his mom and me. Um, but because this is such a damaging issue, and it has the potential to undermine everything we do as a church, we felt the need to do this publicly. And so now, I, 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 this is in your court. How do you respond? Do you forgive him? Yes. Can I hear that again? Yes. Now, let me tell you this, too. I don't have any problem with you all talking to one another or if there's a church member. But if you go out and you start talking about this in the community, your sin is just as great as his sin. And I'm not trying to cover it up. Obviously, if I was trying to cover it up, I wouldn't be standing before you today. This young man needs people to love him, encourage him, and build him back up. Because Satan has beaten him down. His heart is good. Choices is not so good. His heart is good, and I believe in him. And what he did today was one of the most courageous things I've ever seen in my life. The sexual sin was wrong. But standing up here today, I saw my son as a man. And so I'm asking you to help me encourage him and restore him to where he needs to be, serving God. Let's pray together and we'll be dismissed. Father, I, uh, I thank you for uh, my son. I thank you for his demonstration of courage and obedience today. And Father, I just pray for his future. I know you have amazing things for him to do. He's an amazing teacher. He's an amazing musician. But none of that matters if he doesn't give his heart to you. So I just want to praise you for his willingness to stand up. And God, I just pray for the future of our church. That we recognize that our actions have consequences. And if we're going to lead, we are held to a higher standard of responsibility. Accountability. So, Father, I pray for my family, my spiritual family here at this church. I believe in them, God. I love them as if they were physical family.
And I just pray that they would surround my son and restore him to where he needs to be. Take this time and use it for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You're dismissed.